You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, and this episode is brought to you from a very special multi million dollar sound studio. Just kidding. This is being filmed in my 99 4Runner, which, by the way, has a three inch lift. Toy Tech with 285 tires, Cooper ST Max, in case anybody was wondering. And we are deep, deep, deep in the backcountry of Colorado. We're in the middle of bow season. This is archery bow season. So I've taken a few days, quite a bit of time to do some bow hunting. So one of the things I did was I said, I need a sound studio on wheels. And so we have the 99 Forerunner kitted out with the Rode Pod Mic. And we're mobile, as Bane would say. And I've got my Zoom H6 recorder, so we are going to rock on this podcast. I'm really excited about it. For everybody who supports me on Patreon, be sure to go on there and take a look at the photo that I'm going to upload of the pod mic setup that I have in my truck right now. It's pretty amazeballs. So I've got a half-inch breaker bar, and I've taken my roll of 1,000 feet of paracord, and I have lashed this bad boy to the steering wheel, and that is pinned against the windshield. Not sure that's a good idea, but it made me very proud of all my Eagle Scout skills and lashing. I'm not sure my dad would be proud of this lashing job, but it is getting the job done. So I'm very excited about that. And I'm very excited about this episode. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we are going to talk about why are American pastors so soft and what can be done about this. For those of you who missed it in the news today and yesterday on social media, pastors in Moscow, Idaho, Doug Wilson among them, led their church in psalm singing outside, I think it was the Moscow capital, Moscow, Idaho. And uh, Gabe Wrench, my friend Gabe Wrench, got arrested for singing psalms in public. And one of the things that I love about it was afterwards on CrossPolitik, Darren Doan was the one who said, church and men in particular in the church, this is a message for the church. You need to grow a pair. And I think what Darren was getting at is that so many pastors in the church right now are being passive and soft. And we live in a cultural moment when you really can't be. I mean, you cannot be soft right now. You got to be bold and you got to be courageous. And to quote Darren, you got to grow a pair. So this episode is sort of dedicated to that. How can pastors grow a pair? But first, we're going to look at the problems. Why don't so many pastors have a pair, so to speak? And why are so many pastors, as it were, light in the loafers? Why is this the case? Well, if you followed along with the podcast or my writings at ericcon.com, you know that I've been fairly critical about the overall softness of the American pastorate. It's no secret. And I don't mean to say by this that every American pastor is in fact soft, but it is the shocking majority that fall on the soft side of the spectrum. So how come so many pastors and seminaries are training this sort of soft pastor? So I want to delve into that in this episode. I also want to point out that I don't say this from an outside perspective, but I say it as someone who's been in the pastoral ministry or training for the ministry for the last 15 years. So I've sort of had a front row seat uh, to the whole debacle 
that is pastoral training, pastoral ministry. I've been to a prestigious conservative seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary. Right? I didn't go to Asbury. I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the seminary in which Dr. Muller gave a lecture on every point in the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, including the word the, because they're so damn proud of their seminary. Right? I understand how the system, to some extent, works. I've pastored in a rural church. I've been a part of bigger churches in cities, including church plants in Boulder, Colorado. Every single one of my criticisms can be attributed to at least one personal eyewitness experience and many, many, many more conversations that I've had with other pastors. So when I say these things are trends and they're generally true, I mean that I've seen a lot of things in my many years, been part of a lot of churches, and um, these things are shockingly true. Now, I want to point something else out, too, because I think a lot of people are like, yeah, those damn Lutheran lumberjack dyke pastors. I know who he's talking about. But guys, really, it's not the evangelical Lutheran clergy that I'm concerned about in a message like this. Right? The problem with evangelicalism, I mean, those people are a problem. Don't get me wrong. The Methodist church is a problem. The, Luther, the Lutheran evangelical church, that's a problem. But our problem, our in-house problem, is that we got far too many soft-left reform pastors and leaders wearing skinny jeans and blowing kisses in the direction of critical race theory, feminism, and the Black Lives Matter crowd. So, for example, where is Russ Moore in the ERLC when John MacArthur is being attacked and persecuted by the state? Nowhere to be found. Like, this week, last week, Russ Moore is like, Today on my show, I talk with my artsy-fartsy friend about finger painting and building clay pots and how you can connect with other urban elites. Like, give me, give me a break, Russ. But that's, that, Russ is supposedly reformed, right? Russ was the dean of the School of Theology when I was at SBTS. So often, the reformed left soft pastors, their lives and messages are tailored for the intellectual and the cultural elites from white-collar backgrounds, and these are the people they want to impress. Meanwhile, these same pastors, reform pastors, alienate working-class men who, by the way, seem to be one of the last defenders of manly virtue. You know, I've, I've found this interesting, and it really is true. For all their foibles and all their faults, the last vestiges of manliness seem to be found in the American working man, certainly not in cultural social elites. So in this episode, I want to break it down this way. I want to talk more about number one, why is it that the pastorate attracts men who are soft and trains men to be soft? That's point number one. Point number two, why does the pastorate alienate working class manly men from the church? And then third and finally, I want to offer some solutions about what can be done to alleviate this problem. Just some practical, tactical things that we can do as men and as churches to hopefully alleviate this problem. So I want to start today by, this is always the fun part, let's start by talking about the problem. And this is the problem, that many pastors within the church are soft, they're unmanly, or just downright effeminate. What I mean generally is that they lack the manly tactical virtues that would make other men respect them as men. 
They're not very good at being men. And they lack the competencies at the manly art of, well, being men. Right? They're not good at being men. So, for example, they aren't generally rugged. Right? Most pastors today are not rugged. They're not diligent, robust workers with their hands. Many of them don't have any semblance of physical strength applied to actual skill sets. Right? They're not sexually potent or skillful at dealing with women. And often they're the little boy in relationships with their wives. They cannot competently lead other men with gravitas. They haven't displayed courage in the various areas and arenas of life that all men are called to do battle in, from managing their finances well to raising children who are successful in the world. Right? Many pastors simply fail to do this, and then they get a pass because they're super spiritual and they preach real nice, Clark. Many of these pastors haven't mastered manly wisdom skill sets, and that's one thing we're going to delve into in this show. Like these manly practical skill sets. By the way, that's what this show is about. That's what Michael Foster's stuff in large part is about. It's good to be a man, right? If you followed along with any of these outlets, this is really the thing that we're getting at, like proverbial wisdom skill sets. Actually being good tactically at being a man in the world, like how to talk to women, how to interact with other men, how to build a gang of men. These are things that most pastors today are absolutely clueless about, right? Most pastors today are not that good at managing wealth. They're not even that good at rearing children, which by the way, we'll see is a requirement in scripture for their being in the pastorate. And they're basically not good at ruling their own existence well. And so as a result of all of this, and this is kind of, I think, where you see a lot of this, men in the church do not honor or respect their pastor. Why? Because he's not good at being a man. He actually sucks and has to be babied by the other men in the church. Without competency or the respect that flows from it, many pastors are merely tolerated by the folks in their pews, most of whom, as we'll see, tend to be women. So at this point, I want to give a historical sketch of the American pulpit, right? A lot of you, I think, like me, I did at one point, you say, man, where did all this come from? And then the more research and the more reading I did, I started to realize it's not a new phenomenon. So I'll include these in the show notes. But the first book that I want to talk about is actually written by a feminist whose name is Ann Douglas. And she wrote the book, The Feminization of the American Culture. That's Ann Douglas, The Feminization of the American Culture. And in her book, Ann Douglas catalogs this feminization of the pastorate in her book. And she notices a particular shift in the early 1800s among American clergy. Now, you might ask yourself, why this time period? Well, as she points out in her book, several factors led to the feminization of the clergy. And so keep in mind as she's going through the 1800s, so 19th century, and into the 1900s, 20th century, she's really following two groups of people, pastors and women. And she's showing how they interact with each other and how pastors were integral in the feminist movement. So keep that all in mind. Her first point is this, that there was in the early 1800s a decline in Calvinism which Ann Douglas says was the bulwark of traditional patriarchal 
society. So in other words, if you wanted, this is Ann Douglas, she's a feminist, and she's saying if you wanted to have strong patriarchy, that you had to have Calvinism. And for a time, Calvinism and Puritanism protected this sort of patriarchy in the American culture. But as schools like Harvard went Unitarian and became more liberal, pastors became less Calvinistic. And as they did so, they became more open to liberal ideas, among which was first wave feminism. Right? You catch that? So this was one factor that attracted soft left-leaning men to the pulpit. Where Calvinism dies, vibrant patriarchy dies with it. So if you're killing Calvinism in the pulpit, you say, Ooh, that's just mean and men are in charge and I don't like that. Then what happens is feminism takes over and the people who are attracted to the church and to the pulpit, you got it, soft men. You can look at history, like why is Calvinism, why is Reformed theology so important? Because generally where you, wherever you follow robust, lively, spirit-filled Calvinism and Reformed theology, you find robust masculinity. Not always true, but historically in America, definitely true. So, Ann Douglas's second point. Since churches were dominated in attendance and participation by women, many of whom were also social elites, with liberal beliefs, the church's pulpits became suitable predominantly to men who were, from youth, groomed to please and operate successfully in the world of women. So it's really not surprising that many pastors, and Ann Douglas points this out, she catalogs this with many examples from literature and women and pastors, many pastors were sickly young boys who could not physically cut it in the world of working men. And so they were coddled by their mothers and they spent most of their time at home. They were raised, taught, etc., to interact with women on a daily basis. This was the foundation of their upbringing. They were learning how to be men from women. And here's the thing, guys. Women are great at a lot of things. They're amazing helpmeets, right? They're amazing when they're in their lane that God has ordained them to be in. But when women are in the role of teaching men how to be men, you're you're asking for disaster. Women are not made to teach men how to be men. You have to have men teaching men how to be men. That seems common sense, but it's not. Look at our public education system. Public education system today is dominated by who? Female teachers. And those are the people teaching young boys supposedly how to be men. And what do they do? Well, Ann Douglas says they teach men how to please women. They teach men, and in terms of the pastor, they were teaching men how to speak a message that would be well-received by elite, soft, leftist women, right? So again, this attracts soft, left pastors. Third, Ann Douglas points out, many pastors got involved in the book-publishing world, which was just then taking off in America, right? So sort of like our internet age, the publishing world, pamphlets, books, tracks, stuff like that, that stuff was taking off. And when you read about it, it's interesting because basically the stuff that sold is, it's the same stuff that sells today, like the cheap smut, you know, like, I don't know what the equivalent early 1800s, like episode of Friends was, but those were the kind of books that were selling like MTV style crap. And most of the stuff that was written and was popular was overly romantic. It was overly, 
overly emotionalistic. And imagine this, audiences were made up of a majority of women. So this content that was selling was devotional, romantic, and emotionalistic in nature. And as a result, pastors began writing both their books and sermons, which often got turned into published literature. Pastors started writing to win the approval of these women. So pastors were like, well, how do I sell a lot of books? And really the word that Ann Douglas brings up a lot is influence. Like pastors were desperate for influence because the manly men left their churches, right? Calvinism died, manly pastors died out as sort of a breed. And so what happened was men went to business, they left the church. Pastors were like, okay, well, I need to craft messages for my audience who loves me and I have influence among, and that was women, emotionalistic women. Now you can follow, and I've written about this before, you can go to my website. And I can provide a link for this in the show notes. But I've written about why the Christian publishing industry today is at war with men. And it was actually Paul Maxwell who pointed this out. Yeah, basically, if you go to the Gospel Coalition, you go to Crossway, you go to Moody Publishers, which is where I think Paul worked for a time in acquisitions, all their stuff is written for women. And Paul says, even the stuff that is, quote unquote, men's literature in Christendom is actually marketed to sell to women to buy for their husbands or their boyfriends or their sons. So all of this publishing world is dominated by women. Pastors lost the respect of their men, so they turned where they could find influence and favor. So this is a brief survey of some of Ann Douglas's findings. But many of the issues she points out, as I said, they persist today. So, for example, churches remain female-dominated in attendance and participation. That's true even now. Another book, by the way, that you can read on this, Leon Podol's The Church Impotent. The Church Impotent. What a great description of the church today. Uh, Leon Podol's traces the history further back than American history, by the way. Fascinating read. Recommend that to you. Churches are female-dominated. Ann Douglas, Leon Podol's, they point this out. So this is who Christian books and sermons are often catered and marketed to. Same today. Much mainline popular preaching is sappy and emotionalistic in nature. And, this is a key theme, many pastors have sought to preach soft, soothing messages toward women, devotionalistic in style, and women are treated as saintly maidens of virtue. Right? Women are angels sent from heaven while these same pastors go hard at the sins of men because men are pigs and men are devils. Oftentimes, pastors do this so that they can sell more books or, as Michael Foster has pointed out, so that they can white knight. Right? Women will go, oh, he's such a gentleman. He attacks the men and he tells me how lovely I am as a maiden of virtue. By the way, like I w- I've listened to a lot of country music and you, you see this theme all the time. Like there's some Lee Bryce songs that are this way, like I'm an idiot and I'm the devil and she's an angel sent to save me and I sin and get drunk with my buddies. But there she is like rescuing me from the precipice of despair. You know, Rodney Aiken, same deal, man. Just look at the the lyrics. It's this whole crap about women aren't by nature sinners. Only men are. And so we preach hard at men and not women. So what about, we'll shift now, what about the trends lately? 
I want to go over, and this will be the remainder of the episode, by the way. I want to go over some of the remaining trends that we see in our culture. So what are those? These are the other factors that have led to the softening of the pulpit. And number one, intellectual elitism. So why, why are pastors soft today? So one of the answers that I want to give to this question is because of intellectual elitism. And I'm going to unpack this for you. Now, I'll start with an example. I remember some years ago while pastoring a CREC church, I was discussing with one of the denominational leaders why our churches, at least in our presbytery, weren't growing and why there was such a dearth of good pastors in our region. Like, we recognize this. The churches were not growing. We could both see this man and I that there was a problem. It's pretty hard to miss that there is a lack of good shepherds and good pastors out there. And as a result, there's a lack of good churches. But here's the deal. We disagreed about the solution. This is what he said. He said, well, you see, the problem is we need more rigorous academic standards. We need to make ordination exams more difficult. And my immediate thought was, actually, that's not the problem at all. I think if you make the academic requirements, which were already pretty steep, if you make those harder, you're actually just continuing to get rid of the men who would probably make good pastors. Peter was not an academic. He was a fisherman, right? These were working men. And so for those of you, I, I guess, who aren't aware, the CREC largely follows uh, the PCA's ordination exam. They tweak it in a few places, but it's pretty thorough. I've gone through that process. Um, I thought it was pretty lengthy. I thought it was pretty in-depth, right? You have to give Greek and Hebrew exegesis papers. You have to delve into church history. You have to expound tough doctrinal issues on the fly in front of an oral examination committee. And you've got to display a certain level of mastery of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So my point is, as far as denominational exams go, theirs is one of the more rigorous. But here's my problem. The, the, the pulpit and the issues that we're having with the pulpit, it's not a problem of academic rigor for the most part. What we had, in fact, were many pastors who could wax eloquent about obscure French poetry, theatrical or orchestral performances from the mid-14th century, and they could talk at length about the thread count in their shirts, and they did so. But these same men, I so often found, could not pastor their way out of a paper bag. Their IQs might have been off the charts, but their EQs, what I'll call emotional intelligence, were shockingly low. To put it as bluntly as humanly possible, they sucked at dealing with real people and real-life problems. It's sort of like the autistic savant when it comes to theology, but then when you delve into people's problems, they're pretty much retarded. Right? No man wants to go to a pastor who is socially awkward and ask him difficult questions about how to order his life well, particularly if that pastor has not first done so himself. So here's the deal. We've made the work of shepherding. By the way, that's like agrarian farming language, shepherd. We've made the work of shepherding predominantly about intellectual theological tests in the Reformed world. 
Do you know the confession? Explain to me the three forms of unity. What's your favorite part of the Belgic confession? Which part do you read as you're going to sleep? What was Erasmus' next-door neighbor's dog's name? And so on. We've made the pastorate almost solely about intellectual ability, and this in turn means that we all too often attract sociopathic bookworms, highbrow sophisticates, and white-collar coattail grabbers, people who are dying to be praised for their theological precision. And the problem, as many of you have figured out in your own lives through your own experiences, that's not the kind of guy who makes a good pastor. So I want to think about pastoral training for just a minute. How do we train our pastors predominantly in the U.S.? Well, I think one of the huge mistakes is that we require a master of divinity from an accredited seminary. I think this is a great recipe if you want to have pastors in debt, pastors who ruin their families going through seminary. I'm not saying they shouldn't be educated, but there are different ways to do it. So what do we do? We take our brightest intellectuals, intellectuals, that's what we're looking for, and we send them off to a seminary. That's right. We excise them from the local church. We uproot their family, and we send them off to the world of academia. The ones who excel in this kind of world, who end up interning for a dean of a school of theology or working in an office on campus, well, these are the ones who thrive in scholarly academic environments. And by the way, these are hardly the places these poor souls will experience when they leave those halls of the seminary and end up in somewhere, say, like, I don't know, Salina, Kansas. Truth of the matter is, the country boy millionaire farmer who comes to church on Sunday with, you know the guy, maybe you are that guy, with dirty overalls and bailing wire in his front pocket, we had those men in our church, he does not care a thing about how many Greek verbs pretty boy can parse. Hate to break that to you. It's true, though. I knew a pastor who was bright theologically. I worked closely with him. There was not a subject he did not know something about, no matter how obscure theologically. He was bright. And I would ask him theological questions all the time because he was so bright. But one time I asked him to counsel a male congregant who had some pretty serious sin issues going on in his life. What did the uh, savant pastor say to me? He said, befuddled. He was befuddled. And he said, I don't know what you want me to do about it. It's not like I'm a therapist or something. No, I thought, but you are a shepherd. You know, someone who gives guidance, direction, nourishment, encouragement, exhortation, and counsel from God's word so that people can live wise and skillfully. And if you're supposedly doing all that, you better have figured out the skill of living well for yourself, right? But this is so much the problem. Many pastors, and and I'll I'll credit him, I'm critical, but Paul Tripp points this out in his book, can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, maybe Dangerous Calling, but he points this out, that people graduate from seminary and because they have all this theological training, they mistake that for spiritual maturity. The guy that I'm referencing was brilliant theologically and like a 12-year-old when it came to maturity. Like so many of our pulpits are, are similar to this, right? Why? Because all the focus was on intellectual academic training. So what do we need? What, like what, what do we need 
for pastoral training? Well, we need pastoral training, A, that is rooted in the local church, not the academy. That is just a disaster. And by the way, by the way, I remember being in a small group session with Dr. Moeller. And um, Dr. Moeller, it was like you could ask anything. And we had some really good conversations in that room. But I remember Dr. Moeller saying that the existence of the seminary reveals the failure of the local church. That was that, He's a president of SBTS. He said that. Right? The reason that we have seminaries is because the local church has failed. That's where the training of pastors should be happening. So we need to find solutions for training our pastors that does not happen in the academy, but in the local church. Point number one there. Point number two, B. We need pastoral training that restores a proper focus to a life marked by wisdom. Right? A pastor has a life marked by wisdom. That ancient art of living skillfully in a difficult, complex, grueling world. So theology is part of this. Theology is deeply, deeply, deeply important. So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But it has to be balanced with the scriptural foundational requirements in Paul's list for pastors. Right? You're familiar with those lists. Men must have wisely ordered their lives and their own families' lives well. And so when you're training pastors... We ought to be asking questions like this. Is he good at being a man? Like, is he competent at manliness? Is he competent in personal relationships? Is he competent in his marriage? Does his wife respect him? Has he ruled his home well? Is he a successful, reliable worker? Can he work with his hands and not complain? Right? What are his children actually like? They should be fairly grown, if not fully grown, so that you can actually look at that and see. So here's a simple test that I would propose for the pastorate. In order to make it as a pastor, one ought to have worked for a construction company for at least one summer, preferably one year, I think, and report back to the church. How was his attitude and how was his work ethic? Did they hold up? If you can't cut it there in the world of men working with your hands in a grueling job, well, then I would encourage you, don't bother with the pastorate. So I had a friend, here's another story. I had a friend who worked for a construction company. That's right. He started his first day at 7.30 a.m. And before lunchtime, before the noon whistle, he had quit his job. He went into his boss's office and he said, I just can't take it. He said it was too hot out there. It was, it was too physically demanding. Quite frankly, I didn't like the work. So what, pray tell, does this man do now? Well, he's a pastor of a church. The owner of said company? Well, he's one of the pastor's elders. And everybody laughs and makes fun of the pastor for this today. So here's my point. It's a true saying. Many a hard day's work has driven a man to the ministry. Now, that's a sad reality. Many a hard day's work has driven a man to the ministry. Why? Because pastor wants to play golf on Monday. He wants to go out to eat long two to three hour lunches on Tuesday. So many pastors, like you get nothing done, man. And I know because I was a pastor and I dealt with these men all the time, right? Many a hard day's work has driven a man to the ministry. So true. 
So the last thing I want to say about attracting and cultivating men whose primary desire in life is to walk among the intellectually elite, the power brokers of society, and those who desire to be well-respected. Well, I want to put this in perspective of Matthew chapter 11, right? These men who long for the king's halls and the wealthy person's halls, they want to spend their time there, Mr. Collins. These are exactly the kind of men that Jesus said John the Baptist wasn't. Namely, he wasn't soft. Right? What did he say? Soft men wear soft clothing and they exist in soft social spaces. So when the church is awash with men who want to be seen as people of influence, right? Those people of influence in the culture, because of their intellectual horsepower, They want Tim Keller to blurb for their latest book on social capital and white guilt. Well, what you're doing is you're actively recruiting sellouts. You are actively recruiting charlatans, imposters, power lovers, and self-promoters. Like, you know, everything you don't want in a pastor. So the intellectualism trap, I think we have to get away from that as a church, particularly in America. So that was point number one. We foster intellectual elitism, which is often pitted against working with your hands. Number two, what's the other problem? Why are so many pastors soft? Number two, they're too young. Many pastors are too young. Being 18 to 20 years old and being put in the role of pastors, in my opinion, is just absolutely idiotic. First of all, scripture tells us that we should not put untested men in office. And a 20-year-old kid is untested. And I say that because when I was 20, 22, 24, in that range, and like I got out of seminary and I was like, well, everybody else is looking for pastorates. And immediately I was like, dude, there's no way I can go into a church, be respected by men because I haven't done anything with my life. I don't even know how life works. And I'm just going to be the crappy Catholic priest from Gran Torino And all the men are going to be like Clint Eastwood, and they hate me. And this is what happens. You take these young men, particularly men who are intellectually smart and they're talented, and you put them in the charge of a church or a denomination, and yeah, maybe they do well. Look, this was the young, restless, and reformed movement. It was all young people. The young power brokers, the Josh Harris's of the world. Look, Josh is 18, 20, and he's pastoring a church. Look at how God works. Yeah, well, where is Josh now? Josh has left the faith, likely part of the LGBT movement. So earlier this year, Darren Patrick, who was one of the, really one of the prominent founding pastors in the Acts 29 network, he committed suicide. It was interesting because Darren Patrick, who was extremely talented, dude, extremely talented. Like I watched his videos. I followed him for a long time and I was like, This dude is gifted. I can see why he was put forward as a pastor. But it's interesting because a year or so before he committed suicide, he talked about his fall from grace. He had been asked to step down as a pastor because of personal problems. But one of the things that struck me was what Darren Patrick said about himself and about many of the pastors in the Acts 29 network, the men who founded it. And he said essentially this, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, we were a bunch of young, talented men who got famous and had tremendous influence at a very young age. 
We couldn't handle it, and it was a complete disaster. Right? These guys were slick in the pulpit. Some of them still are. It's how many pastors are. Many denominations. Not just Acts 29. The reason so many pastors are soft today is in large part because we promote young men to the pulpit who are not tested men. And we do so directly in the face of scriptural command. We find guys who are fresh out of college. We put them in a pulpit in a young marriage with no children or young children. They haven't proven a damn thing. But we put them in a position where they're telling other people how to live. Something they themselves have absolutely no clue about doing. How is that supposed to work? Now, I remember listening, this is not that long ago, listening to a Matt Chandler talk from a pastor's conference. And this, this is kind of what I'm talking about. This, Matt Chandler is a cocky, cocky person. So Matt Chandler opens the conference and he tells this little story. He tells this story and he goes, he goes, look, guys, I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't prepare for these talks at all, like at all. But he goes, I want to let you in on a little secret, a little secret of mine. He goes, I'm pretty freaking good at this. Okay. And you hear in the audience like, oh, bro, I don't know. I don't know if I would have gone there. And Matt says, he goes, well, I'm not going to lie. I mean, we're being real, right? I'm pretty freaking good at this. Like here's a dude who from his youth was praised and pushed forward. And he is a gifted, slick teacher. But you got a guy who is cocky. And what do you know? Matt Chandler is going in the direction of the soft left. Right? This, this is not a good formula for training pastors. By the way, Acts 29, so many of these guys are not pastors. They're brand managers. And I work in the advertising world and with advertising people all the time. And I can tell you for a fact, these pastors are brand managers. So I was part of a, a church plant that was affiliated with Acts 29, actually two church plants. And like 90% of our time was not taken up with teaching, preaching, ministering to the people in our care. 90% of our time was taken up with how do we rebrand the church? Like I'm talking imaging. What's our website going to look like? How do we have, you know, all the churches like we're the crossing, we're village connection point. Like it's always some stupid crap like that, right? How do we interface with a culture that hates Jesus? But how do we make them feel like Jesus is pretty cool? How do we blend hipsterism with like a soft sort of Calvinism, right? This is what they do. And so who do you need? You need a soft left guy like Matt Chandler. You need a guy who will preach hard at men, right? Just look up Mark Driscoll's sermon when he's telling the men in his church that you're a joke. And then look up Matt Chandler's sermon on Jesus wants the rose. You call her a whore? I call her a beautiful, beautiful rose, and Jesus wants the rose. I can't even do it. This is what you get because you got this one reason, okay? This is not the only reason those guys have problems, but back to Darren Patrick's point, they're too young. If we want to see the pastorate be full of mature, wise men, then we need to stop promoting young men to the office. Yes, we need to identify men who are talented, but we need to have decades of training under wise, older men. Right? We cannot be putting men in the pulpit who have basically zero tactical manly virtues and who have proved essentially nothing in life. Instead, future leadership should be encouraged to build a family in their 20s. Like you find a young guy in your church and he's qualified. Okay, spend your 20s building a family. Build your career. Raise your children. 
and then continue growing in skillful, wise living. Yes, he can be mentored. He can be shepherded. But should he be put in a pulpit at 18? No. Bad idea. So that was point number two. Point number three is that many pastors are separated from a man's world of work. So if you look at human history, where do men learn how to be men? Predominantly, it's through work. So in the olden days, the good olden days, not so long ago, you probably would have been would have been trained by your father in a vocation or a trade. Nonetheless, you would have spent most of your teenage years, that's right, I said teenage years, you would have spent most of your teenage years learning how to work in a trade with your hands alongside other men. But what's happened with the pulpit? Well, this is the story I told about a pastor earlier. Most of them are separated from the world of working men. So this is tied again to the last point about 18-year-olds heading off to seminary, which again is a horrible idea. If you do that, you'll eventually enter the ministry. Think about this, 18-year-olds entering the ministry, you'll do so with zero experience in work and with zero appreciable skills in the world of manly men, something that is to your great detriment. You'll be competent at next to nothing except parsing verbs in foreign languages and arguing about which mode of baptism is Christ's favorite. No, the thing that you really need is manly competencies. You need practical hand skills. Why? Well, first, because men need to know these things. You need to know how to fix things around your house, work with tools, and make a living by the sweat of your brow. Yes, it will harden you in your masculine virtues. You'll be hardened in virtues like endurance physical stamina, cheerful attitude in the face of unpleasant work, and more. I know this because I have worked in those fields. Second, it'll give you a side hustle or an anti-fragile fallback for later in life. Pastors can and do get fired all the time, especially if you're preaching hard truths. And what you need in such a situation to steal your courage and your resolve is a side hustle. It would be great if pastors knew how to weld. Why? Because when the church says, well, we don't like that you're preaching against sodomy, and you can say, well, that's fine. You can fire me, and I'll go make more money doing this, and you'll still have a way to provide for your families. But what so often happens with pastors is they have no skills. Why? Because you're 18, you went to seminary, now you're pastoring. Pastorate falls through. You have nowhere else to turn, and you don't know how to do anything. This is bad. This is fragile, and you don't want that. Here's another point that I think is worthwhile from our present situation, right? Think about the COVID debacle. You know, Bloomberg, when he was paying all that money (laughs) to put himself forward and uh, candidacy, right? You remember what he said? Well, farmers are dumb, but let me tell you, if you come work for me, this this is knowledge work. Knowledge work is important, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and you know what else? All the knowledge workers, and I'm one of them, Yeah, we lost our jobs. I was furloughed for three months during COVID. You know who didn't lose their jobs? You know who wasn't furloughed? Sheet metal framers. Yeah, that's right. The carpenters, plumbers, HVAC repairmen, all those dudes still had jobs. Do you know why? Because you still need your toilet to flush, bro. Yeah, so here's the thing. 
as you're thinking about which skill sets you ought to have, pastor or otherwise, a man ought to think about the things that were essential during the COVID pandemic. Having skills in those arenas makes you anti-fragile and therefore self-sufficient, at least to a larger degree. So again, pastors, men who become pastors, need to have skills in other realms. I also think that many pastors ought to be bivocational. Paul certainly was. Right? One of the things that stands out to me about what Paul says to the churches in his letters is, you have an example in me of how hard you ought to be working. And he could point to his tent making and he said, look, I'm dependent on no one. I am self-sufficient. I wasn't, he wasn't even receiving money from the Corinthian church. No money. And yet Paul was self-sufficient. And he did this intentionally for, for gospel reasons, right? He didn't want them to say, well, you're just doing it for the money. You're just doing this for a paycheck. So Paul had his reasons, but Paul was anti-fragile because he, he worked, right? The other disciples, they were working men. They understood exactly what it meant to put in a full day's labor, right? To sweat with their own brow and to have calluses on their hands. And pastors, like Paul, need to be able to say to the working men in your church, follow my example. Look how hard I'm working. You can do this, right? But the problem is so many pastors don't have a clue what it's like to be a working man. You know, there was a day when I, I kind of begrudged the fact that I always had to work. Like I never stopped working um, with my writing, with, you know, whether it was construction work, I never stopped working in that stuff, even while I was pastoring. And I used to begrudge it. And then I realized if I didn't do these things, A, I wouldn't be anti-fragile. But I think because I can do these things, the people in the church respect me more, particularly the men. Because I could put in a full day of work. I knew how to run a chainsaw. I knew how to run a jackhammer. I could change my own oil. I could fix the plumbing in my house. This is one of my all-time pet peeves. Right? Paul says that you need to be self-sufficient. How many pastors are seen as like the needy child in the church? Like they can't freaking do anything for themselves. Now, I think it's an awesome thing when you can bless your pastor and you can help your pastor. And we as a community, like we're all going to have different skill sets. So I don't know how to put in a hardwood floor. So what do I do? I call my dad. I call my friend. He comes over to my house. We work on it together. But like how many pastors have I known where it's like, dude, don't stand there and watch other people work, right? Don't just expect everybody in the church to pick up slack for you in your house. Like, you have burdens. Carry them. Fix the stuff that's broken in your house. Right? So many times, the pastor is the handout recipient of the church. And they just have this view like, well, the church will take care of everything. I don't have to know how to do those things because the church will do it. Yeah, that might be true, but the men in the church won't respect you. Okay? You need to work hard with your hands. You need to be connected to the world of working men even while you're pastoring. By the way, I talked to so many younger-ish pastors, and they're like, like this conversation we have ad nauseum. They'll call me and they'll be like, what do I do? Like, okay, what's the problem? It's usually a pretty clear-cut issue where they know what they ought to do, right? They know exactly what they should be doing. And I'm like, okay, so what's the deal, man? Like, you've explained it to me. You, you know what to do. 
And they're like, yeah, but if I push this issue, I don't think my elders are going to be very happy. Like, I might be looking for a job. And I'm like, okay, cool. So what are you going to do? Well, here's the thing. I have zero skills. So you understand, so many times the truth isn't preached because men aren't connected to the world of work. You need to be. Men will respect you. And you'll be a better man. You'll be more anti-fragile. The pulpit is soft because men don't work. Right? Number four. And we're coming to a close here, I promise. Number four, the pastorate is soft because so many pastors and men in the church have a false view of cultural change and influence. Right? Why are so many pastors light in the loafers, as I said before? Or at least they trend that way. Well, the final reason I want to give is related to something I'm going to talk about in more detail in an upcoming episode. So consider this a teaser. But the issue is this. Many pastors have a false view of how cultural change happens. All right, this attracts soft men and it makes men soft. So what do I mean? Well, it's worth some explanation. This is what I mean. There are ultimately two views that you see operating in the world today, particularly in the church, of cultural change. On the one hand, it's either that you build from the ground up and see change by building strong individuals, strong families, institutions, churches, and communities. Or, on the other hand, you view cultural change as something imposed by ruling elites and powerful gatekeepers of cultural production. So on the one hand, it's bottom-up cultural change, and that's the hard work, blue-collar change that needs to happen. But on the other hand, it's top-down. So elites just pushing their agenda on the working classes. Now, by the way, this is nothing new, and it's not particular to American culture. This was actually much of the divide in Scotland between the Presbyterians, like John Knox, and a Scotland that was very much from the ground up culturally. Right? If you didn't command respect as the leader of your own household, there's no way, William Wallace, that you were going to lead other men because they wouldn't trust you. Right? And so what you had to do was you had to build from the bottom up. And this was so much of the class because the English viewed it exactly the opposite. They said, well, we're the ruling elite. You have to bow down to us and do whatever we say. Right? And there's that famous scene in Braveheart when they say, you will bow to your king and pledge allegiance. And William Wallace says, never in all my life did I pledge allegiance to that man. And all the woke pastors just gasped in horror. You must obey your authorities, William Wallace. How dare you? What about your cultural capital? What about your whiteness? I mean, your witness, right? So this is the issue. So many pastors today follow the Tim Keller view. The Tim Keller view is the second view. It's the top-down view. It's the view that cultural change occurs as Christians gain access to powerful elites who control cultural production. In other words, our influence comes as we gain access to the editorial pages of the New York Times. That's why Tim Keller loves that so much. Our influence comes as we sign book deals with HarperCollins. Or perhaps we get a guest appearance on CNN or Fox. This type of pastor, as we said before, tends to cave and crave intellectual elitism. So he caves to intellectual elitism and he craves it. 
and he's looking for approval from other elites he aspires to be. He wants to be in those elite circles, like desperately. Like if you follow Ron Burns to Beady Bob on Wabile, whatever his Muslim name is, if you follow these guys, what they so desperately crave is for the elites to go, you're one of us. That, that's right, Russ Moore. You can have the golden jacket. You're part of us. Come here, buddy. Like, that's what they desperately want. And so they're going to shade their message so it doesn't offend that group of people. Right? Do you think Doug Wilson is getting an invite to write at the New York Times? Seriously? No, he's get Like, people in his church are getting arrested for singing psalms in public. Kind of seems like the book of Acts in the Philippian jailer. I don't know. Maybe that's what Paul would have been doing. Here's the other problem. Here's the other huge, huge problem, right? Pastors are soft, but it creates another problem. This kind of pastor who craves the intellectual elite's approval tends to despise working class folks, the very people that probably attend his church. He thinks they're dumb and stupid and they're damn country music and hunting and blaze orange, those idiots. Why don't they love esoteric French poetry like I do? And so this kind of pastor, like, here's the deal. Some pastors have found churches they can do well in. That's Tim Keller at Redeemer in New York. Most of the people in that church are not very distinguishable from the people in the culture at large on a broad number of issues. So if you look at Redeemer, and then you look at the culture, you're like, well, I don't know. I guess they're a little different. So my point is this. If you have this top-down view of cultural change, you're prone for softening. You probably already are soft, and you're in the path of getting even softer. Why? It gets back to Matthew 11. Because you want to be like those who live in soft clothing, in soft places, and in king's palaces. The very places Jesus said, soften men and attract soft men. On the other hand... Manly pastors will embrace a build-it-from-the-ground, man-of-the-people type approach. This is why the working-class people, for all his faults, and there are many, this is why the working-class people are attracted to and love Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump does not present himself as an elite, snobbish person. On the other hand... What do all the cultural gatekeeping elites and cultural production people in media and book companies, what, how do they treat the American working man? Well, they treat him like he's an idiot and they ram crap that he hates down his throat. Here's just one good example of that. Do you know that most polls show that of the American people, something like 80% disapprove of gay marriage? Well, how the hell does it pass the Supreme Court? Well, because the ruling elites have got it in their minds that this is going to happen and we are going to ram it down their throats, whether they like it or not. It's the same reason that you go to opening day of football in the NFL. This boggles my mind. You go to opening day, the Chiefs are playing somebody. I don't remember who. It's football, so who cares? The Chiefs are playing somebody on opening day and they open with the Black National Anthem in Kansas City. And the sideline reporter says, yes, it was quite shocking. They played the Black National Anthem 
and all 16,000 Chiefs fans were booing. Well, well, why do you think? Because you're in red state America. Most of those people are working class Americans who hate Black Lives Matter. They love their Chiefs. Their Chiefs just won a Super Bowl, and they've been through decades of misery as a football team. And you are trying to ram your agenda down their throat, and you think they're idiots, and guess what? They hate you. So you see this crossroads that I'm pointing to, and what I'm telling you is many pastors are on the side of the cultural elites, and most of the people in the church are on the side of working-class America. Working-class America that's not politically correct. That it, no way in hell is voting for Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe. Who are the people supporting Black Lives Matter? Basic white girls who went to college, not working class Americans. My point is this if you want to be a successful pastor in America, be a working class kind of guy. You need to be the kind of guy who is blue jean and t shirt, not French poetry and thread count in your dress shirts. Working class people, frankly, don't care. Yes, if you're on the coast, if you're, you know, Tim Keller in New York, or you happen to be in Sacramento, or you happen to be in some cultural hub like that, you can probably get away with attracting only white collar people. But congratulations, you just lost all of America. What so many American Christian churchmen are longing for are pastors who represent them and who are one of them. Pastors who start with the messy work of ordering their own existence, which will put calluses on their hands and wisdom in their hearts. What the church needs is manly pastors. They need pastors who love blue-collar people and ordinary culture. They won't aim primarily at winning favor from ruling elites, and they won't value the opinions of soft men, but they will have the hearts of their people. This is the kind of thing that we need in the church. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I know it's been a little bit longer, but what can I say? I'm alone in the wilderness, and I felt pretty talkative after four or five days in complete solitary confinement among the elk. One last thing, I want to thank all of our supporters. If you're not yet a supporter on Patreon, I would encourage you to do that, there's three different tiers that you can sign up for on a monthly basis to support this show. When you do so, you're supporting all the podcasting that I do. You're supporting the sound equipment. Who knows? Maybe some of your money at some point went to this half-inch breaker bar that's propped up in my vehicle. I don't know. Those things cost money, like eight ninety nine, Harbor Freight. So again, I appreciate everybody's support. I encourage you, if you're not supporting, to do so. If you feel so inclined, if you are not already following along, you can follow me on Twitter. That's E-R-I-C underscore C-O-N-N, Eric underscore Khan. And of course, you can follow at ericcon.com. A bunch of my writings. You can sign up there as well for my newsletter. Until next time, men, stay frosty. Fight the good fight. Act like men.